This is the story of the transfiguration from the Gospel of Matthew. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his, his clothes became as white as the light. Just then he appeared before them, Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But when Jesus came and touched them, Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. But have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. But the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So tonight... Um, if you saw it ahead of time or you see it on the screen there, the sermon title is called Shekinah Glory. Now, some of you may have heard this word before, some of you maybe not. Um, I, I remember the first time I heard this. Uh, I was a young youth pastor, and there was a girl in our youth group named Shekinah. And I remember asking her parents, you know, it's a very unusual name. What does it mean? And they were really shocked that me as the youth pastor didn't know the answer. They said, you know, well, it's in the Bible. It means the presence of God. And I felt very, very ashamed that I didn't know this. And so I went and looked it up. And one thing you have to know about me is I'm a bit of a know-it-all. And so um, I I really wanted to make sure that this was in the Bible. And and sure enough, um, it's not in the Bible, actually. Um, But it is a word taken from rabbinic literature, taken from rabbis who studied Hebrew and have studied Scripture to mean the presence of God. And, and it's, a, it's a common word you'll hear sometimes reading a Bible study or reading other things, and they talk about this Shekinah glory, the presence of God, is essentially just what it means. That throughout uh, rabbis over hundreds of years studying the scriptures have sort of given it this term when the presence of God sort of shows up. You know, in, in Exodus, the, the passage we read already, it, it came as a cloud of smoke and a pillar of fire that never left the Israelites as they were in the desert. You know, it happens throughout the Old Testament where the Spirit of God descends on a place like with Moses on the mountainside with the Ten Commandments. And if you remember, similarly, Moses comes down and it says that he was shining as well. It comes from the Hebrew term for for dwelling or settling, where, where the presence of God comes down to earth and interacts with his creation and settles in a place. And I remember the first time I looked this up, and when I was 22, 20, 21 years old, whatever it was, and realizing that this is sort of an elusive concept. You know, I've actually, to be honest with you, I've been working on this ever since I first heard this word. How do we make this more regular? How do we find God more regularly? 
You know, one of my, one of my favorite movies of all time is Forrest Gump. And, and, and maybe the best line from that entire movie is when he reconnects with Lieutenant Dan and they're sitting there talking over a beer and he says, hey, Gump, did you find Jesus yet? And he says, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him yet. I always think about that when I think about this term, the presence of God. Am I looking for the presence of God in my life? Christians have been seeking and wondering this since the beginning of all of this. They've been wondering, how do we invite the presence of God down? How do we bring the presence of God to this place? You know, maybe sometimes we feel it in one time or in one worship service, but another time we don't and we wonder why. Some moments in life are special. They're amazing And then other moments in life are dreadful and lonely. We have angelic, amazing worship services where we feel like God is sitting right next to us. And then other times we feel dark and alone and full of sin. Why is this life so inconsistent? Why is this presence of God seemingly something that's so elusive? Because we've experienced something, we try to recreate it, right? You know, maybe if we feel at one time with a special song, we try to listen to that song again. Or, or we go to one church, and, and it happened magically at this church, and, and so we go to this church over and over, but it never really feels the same. And, and we try to reproduce it in any way we can. And, and this was the story of my faith for years. I would go to these Christian conferences or summer camps, and I would have these huge emotional experiences where I felt so close to God, and then two or three months later, I would wonder, well, what happened? Like, where did God go? You know, it's not to be trivial about it, but it's almost like if you, if you sometimes stumble upon a really good recipe by accident or you make something amazing and you didn't really pay attention to what you'd use to make it and you try to make it again and again and it never quite tastes the same. Or, or, or you're bragging about something you make really, really well and then people come over and you try to make it and you think, well, it was better last time. You know, things change, right? We try to reproduce things. We try to control things. We try to have an understanding of these things, but things change. And when we read our Old Testament story, we see that the one thing that didn't change for the people of Israel was that the presence of God never left them. That by night it was a pillar of fire and by day a pillar of smoke and that God was with them for the duration of their time in the the desert leading them to the promised land as he said he would. That the presence of God was there to lead the people, for them to see where to go. But in the New Testament, for us today, it gets a little bit more tricky. We know that we have the Holy Spirit. We know the presence of God dwells inside of us. But because of it, it sometimes seems like it's elusive. Sometimes it's there right in front of us, and sometimes it seems miles away. And so I want to look at this passage a little bit and then talk about maybe how, how we can understand this a little better. How, how we as Christians today can understand this transfiguration and make this a part of our normal life, maybe. So in the first three verses of our text tonight, we see that after six days, after a week of the previous story that it was talking about, he takes Peter, James, and John... Uh, We don't know why these three, maybe because they were the smartest, maybe because he didn't trust them to be left on their own, I don't know. But but he takes these three, and and he takes them up to the mountain, and it just says sort of very plainly in verse 2, and there he was transfigured before them. Now this word um, 
is basically the same root word in Greek that the word metamorphosis comes from. That Jesus was changed in front of them, like, like a caterpillar to a butterfly, right? This is a metamorphosis, which, by the way, is one of the cooler things in nature to see a butterfly come from a little fuzzy worm. But the amazing thing about Jesus' change is this, is that it wasn't that he was not, excuse me, he was not changing into something new, but something old. If you want, you can turn over, uh, I'm going to read a passage out of Philippians. And if you don't want to turn there, you can just listen. But what Jesus changed into was not something new, but something he had been before. These ones are so tight together. It's uh, Philippians chapter 2. And this is what it says. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So when this event happens, when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, he is going back to what he's been since all time. To this radiant, light-filled being that communes with God, that communes with Moses and Elijah and sits there. And the vision the disciples have had of Jesus up until this time is the humbled version of Jesus that he has lowered himself to be with them. It was how Christ has always been. They got a glimpse of this communion that Jesus had with God. And in verse 4 and 5, we see their response. Verse 4, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. It is good. And if you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's build three tents. Let's come back. Let's set up a tabernacle. Let's, Let's make this a pilgrimage that we come to all the time and remember this event and worship and feel the presence of God again. But as we talked about last week, when Jesus cuts Peter off and calls him Satan, this time Peter gets cut off not by Jesus, but by God himself. Poor Peter. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. This bright cloud is what we're talking about with the presence of God that veils God's glory. And the disciples see it and they experience it and they feel something and they fall on their faces. This is the presence of God we're all looking for. These worshipful experiences, this this experience where we hear the very voice of God. And as the story goes on, Jesus says, hey... You know, don't tell anyone about this yet. And they ask this clarifying question. Well, wait a minute. If this is really you, if this is really, if you're really this person, what about Elijah? We thought Elijah had to come first before the Messiah. And he says, hey, Elijah did come first. Talking about John the Baptist and the people didn't know who he was. You know, and this is a great story for a lot of reasons. But what I want to focus on is why Jesus won experience the presence of God at this time and how we can learn from that. 
And my thoughts on this, and I've shared them with you before, I think, about the, the transfiguration, which is why it was so important, is if you look and flip a few pages over in Matthew, he goes back to Jerusalem. He goes back to Jerusalem, and there we know two or three chapters later is his last week on earth. And that Jesus went up to the mountain knowing that he needed to spend time with his father, knowing that he had a difficult time coming up, and knowing that he needed the encouragement and the presence of God felt in his life to be able to lift him up, to be able to go through with it, to remind him and to fulfill him. You know, you look at Peter's response and it makes perfect sense. Lord, this is great. This is good. He says, let's... let's do what we would all do. Let's find a way to come back. Let's find a way to do this again. Let's set up a tent. Let's set up a shelter. Let's set up a tabernacle. Let's, let's come back here and worship and do this again. How do I recreate this moment? It's good intentions, but it didn't work, did it? Because this was a special, intensive moment where the Spirit of God which is alive and active, it was moving and moved into this place And what it makes me realize when I look at this, I see Peter's intentions and I think that's good. When you feel the presence of God, it is good to want to recreate it. It is good to want to go back to it. But you cannot control it. We cannot control it. One of the things Christians have tried to do and failed is that they've tried to build like a zoo or a circus tent for the, the, the presence of God. And they've said, come here and feel the presence of God. Come here and experience great miracles. And, and while that happens and why God moves in that, we cannot control the very presence of God. We cannot call upon it when it's convenient. Otherwise, we wouldn't have these moments when we're tired and lonely and broken, and we call out to God, and we feel like he is nowhere to be found. We do not control the presence of God, but we wait for it expectantly. Because as we look at Scripture, we see two examples here of what the presence of God does in our life. The first example from the book of Exodus is that the presence of God leads us. It gives us direction. It shows us the way to go. It gives us markers along the road. And the second thing I see with Jesus here is that the Spirit of God in these moments where we feel the presence of God, it encourages us. It encourages us to endure persecution, to stand for truth, to live in a way that changes this world. You know, two weeks ago, this has all sort of been going together. Two weeks ago, we talked about forgiveness and the woman who came to Jesus' feet. And then last week, we talked about moving forward with grace and putting to death sin in our life and these things that brought us to Jesus' feet in the first place. And when, what we need to realize when we talk about the presence of God is I, I want to bring something up here that we know, but I, I always like to mention it again, is that we know that these things that are sin or doubt create hindrances to us experiencing God. And we want to be open and feel the presence of God. And we know, though, that we cannot serve two masters. A devotional uh, my wife and I have been reading this week has been talking about this theme all week, that we cannot have two masters. We cannot have two priorities in our life. And if, if our priority is sin or selfishness or pride or control, then our priority also cannot be God. 
And, and we must get rid of these things in our life in a way that invites the presence of God, that opens the door for the presence of God. And I would encourage you in your study to look at the things Jesus did to do this. Look at the behaviors of Jesus. Look at how Jesus practiced a Sabbath day. Do you practice a Sabbath day? Do you do, have a day where you just don't do anything and open the door for the presence of God? Do you have a day where you slow down? Where you don't check your email first thing in the morning and get on someone else's schedule and someone else's to-do list, but you take time for you and your family? Do you get away by yourself to pray? We look at the example of Jesus. It regularly says, and in the sixth hour in the morning, Jesus went away by himself to pray. And, and, and the, the Mount of Olives, the night before he's crucified, he was up all night praying. Do you have time to pray? Do you have time to be reading Scripture, following the example of Jesus, to know Scripture, so that when you feel the presence of God is far, like when Jesus was being tempted, Scripture comes to your mind. Scripture comes into your heart, and you remember the truth. And this is not in the Bible, but I'm pretty sure if Jesus came today, he would teach about this. Do you ever just turn off everything? Do you ever just turn off your phone and, and your computer and your TV and all of these things and just have quiet time? See, the presence of God, while it feels elusive, we have not done a great job to invite it into our lives, folks. In fact, we've done things that, that have worked in the exact opposite of this. And we must ex- understand that... Uh, to. To find the presence of God, to experience the presence of God, that it works together with as we purify our lives and desire these things that are good, that the door then opens for the presence of God to come into our life. That becoming more holy and purifying from sin in the presence of God are sort of mutual activities. That the more we live in the presence of God, the less desire for sin and pride or doubt we have. We do not seek to control God's presence, but we invite it into our normal lives. And it's weird because these things sort of have to happen at the same time. It's a weird balance. We want to overcome sin or doubt, but we cannot do it without the presence of God. And we cannot be in the presence of God with unrepentant sin in our lives. They sort of have to happen at the same time. See, a lot of people sometimes think that, okay, well, to experience the presence of God, I have to get rid of all sin first. And I got I to be perfect. I got I to really clean things up. Well, as many of us know, when we try to overcome sin and doubt and temptation by ourselves, it doesn't go so well. And so we get stuck in this cycle of just trying to be better people, which isn't pursuing God. It's just behavior modification. And, and then inversely, some people say, well, I want to experience the presence of God, and, I, and, and this is what they're desiring, and this is what they're pursuing, but they're not dealing with the temptation and the sin they're existing, they're, they're allowing to exist in their life, and they're wondering, why am I so distracted? Why, why can I not find time to read my Bible? Well, that's because you haven't put God first. The more we flee from sin, and the more desire from time and the presence of God we will have. It's a mutually existing thing. It's sort of this paradox that comes into life when we pursue God. And that we have to do both at the same time. 
In our pursuit of the presence of God, we also rid ourselves of sin. In our pursuit of Scripture and prayer and time with God, God also frees us from the things that tempt us. You know, there's so many of these paradoxes, right? (laughs) One of the other paradoxes I think of all the time when I think about this is relationships. You know, I think relationships are a great example of how we understand the presence of God in our lives. Because God has made us, I don't know if you realize this or not, this is actually something that's in your DNA, is to be with him. This is something that your soul is longing for. And you think about relationships, and and, and some people love relationships, love friends. They're they're the kinds of people who run out, who seek friends out. Um, they, They know they might lose them, they know it might not work out, but they're open and welcoming and loving, and they go through, and yes, they may get hurt, Yes, they may mourn the loss of a friendship one day, but they still keep going, and they still keep finding these friendships. And some people, who I'm a bit more like this, guard against friendships sometimes and put little walls up because they know, I don't want to get hurt later. I don't want to, you know, get run over later. But both people, both types of people, are still desiring relationship. One is just mourning and wishes they had more, but they're too afraid to put themselves out there. And then one person is just putting themselves out there and then mourning when they lose them. Inside of each of us is this desire to commune with one another. It's a desire to commune with another being. And really what that is, it's a desire that God put inside of us to commune with him. You, know, you think about this in extreme examples. You see it in children. You don't have to raise your hand and admit this, but sometimes children have imaginary friends because they have such a desire to have a being that understands them and that knows them and that they're safe with. Kids will just create an imaginary friend. You know, another great example is the movie Castaway, where Tom Hanks becomes best friend with the volleyball. And, and, and when he finally gets off this island, if you've never seen it, it's just a fantastic scene. You see this grown man screaming and mourning the loss of this volleyball. You think, what in the world is that about? It's a desire to commune with something, with someone, to feel known, to feel understood, to have a connection, even though we know it may hurt us. And this desire comes from the thing built inside of us, this mystical thing that God put inside of us to commune and be in his presence. And the disciples' reaction, though not perfect, was good. This is good. This is where we should be. So we see that the presence of God in the book of Exodus not only will lead us and guide us to where we should go, but it will also encourage you, help you overcome struggles. And this is the best part about it, is unlike other relationships, unlike other things we put our trust in, it will never let you down. Deuteronomy 31 and then Hebrews 13, which quotes Deuteronomy 31, says that God will never leave us or forsake us. That this is a place, this is a an area of life you can be and you can trust in the presence of God. This is what God has designed you for, to be with Him. In the next chapter of Matthew, Jesus is talking and He says this, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. But woe to the man through whom they come. 
If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. Think about this in the context of the presence of God. This is why Jesus is so intense when he talks about sin. Because sin is the thing that keeps us from being in God's presence. And if it keeps us from being in God's presence, then it's keeping us from the very purpose you were created for. And when we open our lives up to these things, and and we say it's not that big a deal, Jesus died on the cross, I'm okay, we're basically telling God, you did not do a good job in creating me. I don't need what you offer me. But when we come to the feet of Jesus, and we go to this world, and, and, and we slow down, and we spend time in community, we spend time in scripture, and in prayer, we open up the door, we invite God and his presence into our life. You know, the presence of God will always seem elusive if you try to control it. The presence of God will always seem far away if you try to manage it. But the presence of God, if you invite it in through prayer and scripture, through the disciplines that Jesus showed us, will encourage you for your life to come. And it will build you up into a person where not only are you experiencing the presence of God, but then others will experience the presence of God through your actions, through your love, and through the truth that comes out of your mouth. But you have to be willing to make space in your life to let God in and get rid of the stuff that tangles. Remember what the Apostle Paul wrote. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that tangles us. We have to be willing to open up the doors and invite God in. Would you please pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for being willing to lower yourself to this earth and to commune with us. Lord, thank you for offering us your spirit to dwell with us each and every day. Like the Israelites had their presence in a pillar of smoke and fire, Lord, we have your spirit guiding us. And Lord, when we have those times of communion, of fellowship with you, Father, I pray that it would encourage us for the task ahead. Like Jesus was encouraged to go to the cross, Father, I pray that you and your presence would encourage us to take up our cross daily and follow you. May your presence guide us. May your presence equip us. May your presence give us wisdom through the power of the Spirit to live a life worthy of the calling we have received as your daughters and your sons. Lord, thank you. We pray all this in Christ's matchless, powerful name. Amen.